Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 423 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Adam, and I'm not joined by Jill because she is at PLA in Nashville. So I brought in what is fastly becoming my trusty sidekick, Andrea. Hey, Andrea. Hi. What's going on? Oh, just another day. Just another day. Yes. So I didn't want to do this introduction alone. Um, So I brought Andrea in, um, and we'll talk about books in just a second. I think she's going to yell at me. But first, I want to let you know that today's episode is with Cassandra Clare. Holy crap. Um, She is... What I think actually now that I've interviewed her, I think I've gotten like all but one of like the YA fantasy queens. So I've interviewed her and her buddy Holly Black and Victoria Schwab and Lee Bardugo. And I think <laughs> the only one I'm missing is Sarah J. Moss of like the like Do you hear that, Sarah? Up yeah, of like the upper echelon, like the pantheon of YA fantasy. I know you're writing a lot of books. Queens. And you got a baby. You know who else is writing a lot of books? But let's get us done. It's Cassandra Clare and she made time to talk with me. That's all I'm going to say. Um, no, Cassandra was, she was so much fun. We, uh, she has a new book coming out called Chain of Gold, which if you're listening to this Monday, comes out Tuesday. Um, we get all, all up in it. It's another amazing Shadow Hunter book, but it's the beginning of a trilogy and we talk about how she works really hard to create these trilogies that are approachable even if you've never read a Shadow Hunter book, which is very, very cool. Uh, I won't lie, like 10 to 15 minutes of this conversation is me convincing her to get a tattoo. Like, I go hard on that. I need to know if you asked for my questions. Uh, we'll talk off air about the questions. I believe at least oh. one of them came from you. If I, But I don't remember if I told her if it was from someone else. So, <laughs> um, But no, it was a blast. You guys will really, really love this conversation. She, If you enjoyed the one with Holly Black, it's much the same. They're like best friends, so we get into that a little bit. Um, I also told her about, and I'll just tell you briefly, I think I told you, I got a, uh, like, we got a, a one-star rating from the Holly Black. Yes. Yeah, the Holly Black interview because this person was mad about the way that I chatted with Holly because they don't normally listen to our podcast. So I'm sure I'll get more of those if Cassandra shares this with her audience. Bring on the sass. Yeah, I, I welcome the sass. That's okay. Uh, so that's really fun. If you want to get a hold of us, you can go to professionalbooknerds.com. Uh, you can email us at professionalbooknerds.overdrive.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds. You can do our Professional Book Nerds reading challenge on any of those places. And uh, I will put a link in the show notes for this as well. If you want, you can help Jill and I raise money for the Leukemia and Lymphoma, uh, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society because we're raising money for that um, here in Cleveland. Okay, now... Andrea, what have you been reading lately, and what are you going to yell at me about? Well, speaking of Holly Black, yes, I'm actually currently reading The Darkest Part of the Forest, which takes place in the same world as The Cruel Prince and all that, but it's like a prequel, not prequel, Okay, because it takes place in the same world, and some of the characters that we see throughout that series, this uh-huh. features on this one, and it, she published it before The Cruel Prince. So... Oak is not in it. Oak is not in it. Okay. I feel, I think that this is I, not 100% sure, but I feel like it's pre-Oak. God, I effing love Oak. He's my favorite character in the whole series. <laughs> he is very cute. Yeah. And the woman who did the audiobook did his voice just 100% adorably. Okay, I will now I need to listen to the audiobook. I didn't know that. That's in, that's yes. very, that's inside, it's essential. Um, but so this one is about Hazel and her brother Ben, who live in this town of Fairfold, where humans and Fae exist side by side, hmm. and they have like an unspoken truce between the humans and the Fae. Like, if you are a resident, you're like untouchable. Huh. But if you're a tourist, 
you're like freaking and people like go to this like town to like look at fairies and it doesn't go well for them mm-hmm. but hmm. um so things start happening and in this the forest there is a glass coffin with this fae gentleman male who's been <laughs> who's been there for like hundreds of years did you like that i like think you forgot how to say words <laughs> i did um and one day he wakes up and he wakes up and everything goes back uh-huh that yeah that tends to happen in a Howie Black so, book. Yes. So it's kind of interesting to see these characters that I cameoed mm-hmm. in the other and kind of get their backstory and nice. how they all came to be. Nice. Okay, what do you want to yell at me about? So yesterday, as I was perusing Twitter, I saw something about celebrating a book launch for um, a book called The Shadows Between Us mm-hmm. by Trisha Levenseller. Yes. Which I was unaware of. Yeah. Friend of the show, Trisha Levenseller, who has been on. And you have alerted me to her previous three novels, so I don't understand why you didn't alert me to this novel. Okay. A little peek behind the curtain <laughs> when it comes to Trisha Levenseller. We're really, like, hitting YA hard. This is good. All full circle. This is good content here. So, if you don't remember, if you weren't listening when Trisha was on, her first two books were Daughter of the Pirate King and Daughter of the Siren Queen. Amazing. Amazing books. Badass Lady Pirate. YA. Just there's magic. As you will know if you've listened to the, to the show for a little while, that's one of my low bars is being like, there's a lady pirate in this. And I'm like, I'm in. Then her next book that came out was called Warrior of the Wild, which... Badass Lady Viking. Badass Lady Viking, which is, again, right up with everything I am all about. So you and I, one of the many things we bonded over was our shared love for Trisha's books. And I don't know if you know this, Andrea, but I have to know about a lot of books in my <laughs> job here. And this happened to be a book that I that didn't I didn't get sent. I'm not shading the publisher because I don't even know who the publisher is off the top of my head. Fuel and Friends. Okay, well, we were trying not to shade the publisher. <laughs> um, they didn't send me a copy of this. And frankly, I find that pretty rude because of the, <laughs> uh, the help that I think we've done. Um, but they didn't send me a copy. And so because they didn't send me a copy, they didn't send me two copies, which is normally what happens <laughs> so that I can get... It's normally I, how I get my other two books. <laughs> also, dear listeners, please let the record show that I have given you many a book. That is true. That... All right. Other people don't get access to. Sometimes I just like leave them on your desk when you're not even there. That is true. I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm a great friend. You are a great friend. And I guess I can let this one slide because okay. you have introduced me to many of my favorites out of the blue and yeah. randomness and the warmth and generosity of your heart. See, it's not just listeners that are getting great content from my recommendations. My actual real life friends do too. See? Um, we all win. Everybody wins. So I guess we'll just both have to go buy this book or borrow it from the library. Oh, you're like, you just said you're really low on the list here. I am low on the list. So. Which, I guess I'll go buy it then. It's like the most first world problem in the world here. It really is. Yeah, people are like, But, Shut I mean, up. listen to this. Alessandra is tired of being overlooked, but she has a plan to gain power. One, woo the Shadow King. Two, marry him. Three, kill him and take his kingdom for herself. I didn't even need to read the rest of the synopsis. Yeah, I know. Also, words really just kind of jumbled together there. But You're, you're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, I mean, that alone. Give I, it. Give me. 
I know. We'll, we'll get to We will. So, all right. Listen, at this point, people who don't normally listen to the podcast but are listening because they saw that there's a Cassandra Clare, like, hour-long conversation. Like, blah, blah, exactly. blah. Move on. <laughs> yeah. So, what we're going to do is we're going to end our intro here and let you guys get to the conversation I had with the absolutely fabulous Cassandra Clare on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. <laughs> Hey everybody, it's Adam again, and I cannot tell you how excited I am to say that today I am joined by Cassandra Clare, the global sensation and international best-selling author of multiple series, including The Mortal Instruments, The Infernal Devices, The Dark Artifices, and The Magisterium series, which she co-wrote with past guest Holly Black. She's an icon, an institution, one of the most prolific and talented writers of our time, and of course, she has a new book coming out on March 3rd titled Chain of Gold. Cassandra, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So we always like starting our conversations with authors by giving you the opportunity to kind of introduce our listeners to your new book. So can you kind of give us an introduction to Chain of Gold? Sure. So the Shadowhunter World consists of a series of linked, uh, you know, trilogies. And you can read them separately. You don't need to have read any of the previous books to uh, read the last hours. But they do contain, you know, a similar mythology and background. So this is a world in which there are people called Nephilim, and they are descended from the offspring of human and angels. And they have the power to fight demons that most people can't see. And so this takes that place actually in 1903 in the Edwardian period. It's a historical period that I really love. And I was sort of like tickled by the idea of mixing up sort of Downton Abbey and demon slaying. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, Chain of Gould begins with a really Edwardian setup. A young girl named Cordelia Carstairs comes to London with her family because her father has been arrested. He's in disgrace and they're worried the whole family will be ruined by what has happened, and her mother is determined that Cordelia get married in order to save the family name. So this is a setup of a lot of historical fiction, mm-hmm. but what's different here is these people are demon hunters, and Cordelia does not just have uh, the mandate to get married, but also to patrol the streets of London, slaying demons with her sword Cortana. And I really love Cordelia. She's a really badass character. And, of course, she's got no time for her mother's plans. She doesn't want to be, you know, shoved into a forced marriage. She wants to clear her father's name by killing as many demons as she can and solving the mystery of what really happened. Did he actually commit a crime? Did something else occur? What's the real story? So just in that introduction, there's like 10 things I want to unpack and ask you about. Um, first things first, and I, this is not a question, just a compliment from all your books. You, uh, you have some of the best named characters that just like roll off the tongue, which I, I love your naming of characters. But Thank you. Yeah, so I, you mentioned I really, really love what you do with the fact that you, know, you mentioned the you know, Shadowhunter's world is there's these series of trilogies that people can read without reading the other stuff. And I think that's so like, just awesome that you do that because it's, let's face it, at this point, like you have a fandom that you could just connect all these and say like, no, you have to read the first six to, to, to get the seventh. And, you know, what made you want to do that to kind of keep going to make sure that the world is open to new readers? I mean, I think it's exactly what you said. I want it to be open to new readers. I always find it difficult, you know, for me as a reader and 
I am a, a huge reader, and I love series, but when I'm confronted with a series that has 36 books in it, and I'm kind of like, oh my God, how am I going to handle, like that is a big commitment to sit down and read all those books. And, uh, you know, I don't want to read only a few of them and then be left hanging with no resolution, but I also don't know if I have it in me to read all 37. So uh, what I wanted to do was create a world that I thought people would really love, and but create the possibility that if they wanted to just see what the Shadowhunter world was all about, they could take three books and read, you know, The Dark Artifices or read The Infernal Devices, and, you know, after the third book, they'll get a conclusion and they'll get a resolution to the story. If they want to continue, you know, and of course I hope that they do, then they can pick up the other trilogies and read them, but they're not, they're not you know bound to commit themselves to reading 37 books and if say they read one series you know they read the mortal instruments and then they're wandering through the bookstore one day and they see chain of gold i want them to feel like they can pick it up and read it without being like oh no i have to go back and read like six other books before i can read this the whole 37 book thing that's like the wheel of time quandary i feel like is (laughs) that Really long. I, you know what? I think it's in the thirties. I it's, don't oh, have it. It's I, it was a. I can actually. I just pulled it up while you're talking. It was originally planned as a six book series, but there are fourteen volumes in addition. Okay, okay. So, so, so not, not quite in the thirties, but they are really long. Yeah. So it feels like you know, like each one is kind of two books. <laughs> I have to imagine doing it this way as well kind of helps things stay fresh for you as a writer too. That actually is a good part of it. I mean, when I, I remember I was finishing up the Mortal Instruments series and I went to my editor and said, yeah, I'd like to write some more Shadowhunter books. And she said, oh, more, you know, more about Clarion Jace, more Mortal Instruments. And I was like, actually, I'm thinking a totally different thing. I'm going to, you know, instead of writing in the modern day period, I'm going to go back to 1878 and write about Shadowhunters in Victorian London. And she was really thrown because I think she thought, can you know, how's that going to work? Can you do that? It's so different than, you know, the previous books. Will the, your readers follow you? And, you know, how will you, who have written, you know, contemporary fiction, handle writing historical? And so I kind of had to prove to her that I could do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it turned, you know, as it turned out, luckily, you know, my readers did follow me to Infernal Devices. And I think they found that they really loved the idea that here was this other series that they could read, and it was a whole new story. Uh, I'm glad you brought up Infernal Devices. I That reminds me, I was supposed to tell you that both my wife and my sister-in-law, those are their personal favorites, and so they... Aww. Yeah, again, they were like, be sure to tell her that. I was like, well, that's not a question, guys, <laughs> but I'll let her know. <laughs> not really a question, more of a comment, but I like it. I, I, I really appreciate it. I also really have a special soft spot for Infernal Devices. I love it, and that was part of what brought me to Chain of Gold in the last hours is that the characters in uh, Chain of Gold are the children of the characters in Infernal Devices. And so I'm assuming in order to write a period piece type of a story like Chain of Gold, you have to do, I would imagine, a ton of research. Yes. I did a really weird thing with the Infernal Devices, which was I decided for six months I was only going to read and watch and, like, consume media that was either about the Victorian period or written in the Victorian period. Oh, man. It was a very, it was like a, I was like, it's the novel is like a sensory deprivation tank. Like, you sort of go in and you only take in, like, this very limited quantity of stuff because I felt like in some ways writing historical is like learning a new language and immersion is the best way to do it. 
Um, my friend Holly, who I wrote in Magisterium with, by the end of the time I was doing the research, said that I had started to talk really weirdly. And <laughs> 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 use a lot of, like, Victorian slang. Um, so... Uh, that is very is very nerdy, but I love the historical research part. It's actually really fascinating, and I always think of um, like I just you know I finished doing the research for you know, you're never actually really finished doing the research. Mm-hmm. So you know I'm the research is always ongoing. Each book is going to bring you to a new piece of business um, about that historical period that you don't know yet. Um, but it was when I was doing the research for. Uh, for Chain of Gold, I remember thinking that one of the things about this kind of historical research is is that it's like an iceberg. You basically, mm-hmm. you learn 100% of this stuff, but you, only 10% of it is actually going to appear in your book, but you actually need to know all of it. I I love the idea that you're basically like becoming the method actor of, of <laughs> writing. You're like the Daniel Day-Lewis of writing exactly. books. Exactly. <laughs> um, and I'm sure his friends are like, Daniel, stop! <laughs> <laughs> So what were um what were some of the like was there anything like really really shocking or fascinating something that stood out in all your like doing research for Chain of Gold that you were just like oh my god I I did not know that at all. I think one of the things that is interest well I did, I found out a lot of like disturbing stuff about um the about the work that people did in the Edwardian era, which indeed never made it into the book because these people are shadow hunters and none of this really applies to them. But um, the I was researching, like, matches because hmm. one of the characters smoked cigars. So I had to figure out what kind of matches would you use, <laughs> what would they be called, what would you keep them in. And as I was researching it, I found out that the people who worked in mass, matchstick factories because the conditions were unsafe defend, wound up with a thing called phosphorus necrosis in oh. which the phosphorus of the matches would eat away at their bones, and when they were buried, their bones would glow. Uh, that's, um, that's, um, that's very similar to... There was a book that came out a few years ago called Radium Girls. Yeah, the Radium Girls. Um, yes, they were... Uh, I remember reading about that though it's not i think it's later than this period and it was in the u.s yeah so it was like the early 1900s i think it was kate moore who wrote the book she, she was on the show like a long long time ago but it's kind of the same thing in the sense that these girls would dip there and it was it was in the u.s and it was i think it was around world war one um maybe world war two but they would dip their like their pens or their paintbrushes rather in radium and they would be painting like watches and stuff that glow in the dark and they would need to put the uh, the paintbrush into their mouth to make it as fine a point as possible. So they were basically eating radium and gave them cancer and everything. But exactly what you said, like their bodies would basically glow. And for a while, because on on balance, people are not the smartest. Like all of the people in society would be like, oh my gosh, they have that radium glow. Like it was a positive thing. Yes, I do remember reading about that. Yeah, that and it was it was like 1917, kind mm-hmm. of that time period. And uh, um, right, people had wanted these watches to to have these illuminated, yeah. you know, surf, you know, markings on them. So they were painting them on. And you're right, they were licking the paintbrushes, and they wound up with actually a bunch of different diseases, but a similar thing that 
that the matchstick um, mm-hmm. workers got, which was a thing called fussy jaw, which is like when your jaw kind of basically crumbles and comes off. Yeah. No, it's great that we're talking about this really gross topic. <laughs> it's actually not in the book at all. Yeah. But you asked me if anything shocked me, and I think, you know, the conditions under, there's a huge gap between the rich and the poor mm-hmm. in this time period in history, and the conditions under which the poor lived were shocking and, you know, truly, you know, they were horrible in cold winters, you know, they would find the dead bodies of children in the streets in the East End because, you know, they had nowhere to sleep and nowhere to go and there were no social services that were there to provide anything for poor people and other than, you know, small individual charities. And meanwhile, you know, the rich were living a completely different life. And that is, I think, something that informs any writing about that period of time is you have to remember this big gap between those who have and those who don't have. And, you know, the the terrible conditions for the factory workers were one of those things. But remember that all that ca- that what came out of that for me was a knowledge, like, like in the book, what you what you learn is about matches. <laughs> Did you know that 70% of people say they want to use natural products, but only 2% actually do? Why is that? Because what they sell at the store is from the biggest companies, not necessarily the ones that are best for you. So where do you start? Introducing Grove Collaborative. Grove Collaborative offers healthy, plant-based, non-toxic cleaning products that do the work for you, and you can feel good about them. So Grove Collaborative is the online marketplace that delivers all-natural home, beauty, and personal care products directly to you. They take the guesswork out of going green, uh, and every Grove.co product is guaranteed to be good for you, your family, your home, and the planet so you can save time uh, from like trying to figure out all the confusing labels and everything. It's You don't have to worry about any of that. So... About a month ago, we did our first ad read for Grove, and I then did an Instagram story about all the stuff that we got. And first off, the products, we use them every single day. Grove has this amazing cleaning products for things like granite. We have granite countertops. I guess we're very bougie. We have a shower that there's a shower cleaner for. They have this walnut scrubber, uh, like basically a sponge that we use every single day. And people who watched the video, they also have vitamins. We got the elderberry vitamins, which we've since bought several things of uh, in just a month. I think my wife and I might be eating too many elderberries, but they're delicious. And uh, perhaps most importantly, in our household, our dogs lost their minds over the pet treats that they had available. So all the stuff is amazing. I have dogs, so I feel good knowing that they aren't getting into anything. And someone who is still sitting with me, Andrea, you have daughters. So it must be nice to know like you can get stuff from Grove and know that they're not going to get into chemicals and things of that nature. And for me, too. Well, yeah. Also for you. Yeah, we do have the granite counter cleaners because... We, we are also very bougie. We use them every day. And so here's the thing about granite. Again, I, I, we talked about first world problems in the introduction of this episode. It's a, it's a luxury to have granite, but the stuff we ha- we can't really see like when it's dirty and when right. it's not. So You're the, like getting eye level with the granite. Exactly. To like. <laughs> yeah. So the, the cool thing about the Grove stuff is they have a daily cleaner. And so we literally use it every single day. So. Here is what we have for you, our listeners. For a limited time, when our listeners go to grove.co slash PBN, you will get a free five-piece cleaning set from Mrs. Meyer and Grove, which is a $30 value. Go to grove.co 
co slash pbn to get this exclusive cleaning offer. It's amazing. We got this too. I Again, we use this every single time we're cleaning. It's like a cleaning caddy. It's fantastic. We use all the stuff that comes in it. Um, aside from this ad read, my wife and I are now like, grow. we have a monthly thing that comes to us. That's how much I love all this. As a mother of two who also has a life to live, monthly schedules of just things appearing at my door Yeah, is a beautiful thing. Exactly. So this stuff is absolutely perfect for you. So one last time to get that uh, free exceptional offer from Mrs. Meyer and Grove. Just go to grove.co slash PBN. And on top of all the research you're doing for the actual time period, I mean, I, your, I imagine, are, are you still doing a lot of research for like mythology and like religious stories and stuff to kind of find like demons and creatures? Like, is that something that's ongoing for you? Yeah, it's always changing. Um, you know, the, I, the demons are often influenced strongly by the place that, you know, the story takes that takes place or the histories of the characters. Cordelia, our main character, is half Persian. Uh, her mother was born in what we now call Iran. They called Persia at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, so I wanted to bring a little bit of the influence of Persian mythology into the book. Um, so I had to do a bunch of research into that and also research in general into Persian culture, food, language. So, you know, that was a whole other aspect of the research as well. And I'm just imagining like, that is another thing that I would imagine as you're creating new characters and new timelines and things like that also has to probably help keep it. I'm just, you're like <laughs> slowly but surely becoming like an expert on world mythology of like all these different <laughs> locations. I mean, fortunately, it's something that interests me anyway, but it's true. One of the uh, another book that I was writing this year, because as you have pointed out, I read a lot of books, yeah. is set in modern day Shanghai. So I had to, you know, get a pretty thorough education in Chinese mythology and history and the history of Shanghai what Shanghai is like now, what Shanghai used to be like 100 years ago, all of that stuff kind of goes into, went into um, The Lost Book of the White, which comes out later this year. So, yeah, it's a, it's, 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 there's a good exercise in, like, maintaining compartments in my brain because I have to do, you know, the research into Persian mythology, research into Chinese mythology, but remember to keep them separate and, you know, the time periods as well and the places. That brings up a great point. Like, do you focus on one story at a time or are you kind of are you juggling things i'm juggling things but i try to separate them out somewhat so i guess what i mean by that is that i work best if i'm allowed to immerse myself in a project for a little for at least some period of time so i try never to give myself less than a month to work on a specific project so it can be that i will spend you know, April working on one book and May working on another book. But I don't do, I know, I know people who can work on more than one book in a day and that I can't do that. <laughs> so on balance, like how, that, I'm like, this is really interesting. We have a lot of writers who also listen in. Um, on balance, like how long would you say it takes you to make that kind of first draft? Because you mentioned a month, like, can you complete a draft of a story in a, in a month? I can complete a draft of a story in about three months if I'm really pushing. Okay. Um, and then it will be, I mean, I, I believe that there, you know, it's about basically an amount of time it takes me to make a book. And if I race, rush on the first draft, then I will end up taking more time in revisions. Mm-hmm. If I take more time in the first draft, I will take less time in revisions. So 
I can do a draft in three months, but then I'm going to end up taking more time to revise it. If I have six months would be about the amount of time I would want to do a draft. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of like, that's sort of what I try to, to keep, you know, as a constant is like, I have six months to draft. Um, I was going to say, first off, I was like, if you're writing a, a draft in a month, like you're some kind of demigod and that we need to have a different conversation. Oh, I know there are people who do that. And I'm just like, oh my God, what is your secret? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's obviously there's NaNoWriMo, but like, that's like when we all do 50,000 words worth of just like <laughs> garbage that we then, that you keep like seven words of, but that's not the same thing. <laughs> um, does it help when you're, when you have multiple projects? Like I'd have to imagine that would help with things like writer's block and like keeping yourself moving forward well i mean i think that's true if you're really you know stuck with writer's block you can switch to another project and that can help free up free you up a little bit um and i think the moving between projects actually kind of is a preventative for for me for writer's block Mm -hmm. i'm less likely to get it because and this is you know i'm sure that this isn't true for everyone and that's one of the things about writing is you know what works for one person isn't always going to work for another person but for me I think the switching between projects helps keep me in the flow for the projects that I am working on. I think I heard you say on uh, my buddy Yin Chang's podcast, 88 Cups of Tea, that the idea for like the whole, yeah, Yin is the, she and I, we are good buddies now. We actually met because there's this little community of uh, book podcasters and it's, I joke with, I'm like, if you want to make a bunch of book friends, just start a podcast because we'll all (laughs) flock to you. Um, But I, I heard you on her show talk about did city of bones really like did the idea kind of come from visiting a tattoo artist is that true yeah yeah that is true okay so as a person personally who is kind of covered in literary tattoos i'm fat how did this happen oh that's so cool i love a literary tattoo (laughs) um i well she was she she had actually sent me i'm trying to remember where i was in I, i had just moved to new york and I had met, uh, her name's Val, I met her through a friend of mine who worked at St. Mark's Comics, mm-hmm. which used to exist and probably doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> and um, she had, the tattoo shop was on St. Mark's Place. So Val and I became friends, and she asked me to come down and, and I, you know, and check out her, her her flash art and stuff like that. I've like literally spent most of my life been like being like I want to get a tattoo, and then chickening out at the last minute. <laughs> so we went there, and she showed and her she showed me her flash art, which has actually become the basis for the tattoos in the books. And so when you see them like on the actors in the movie or the TV mm-hmm. show, Val did all of those. So it's been very cool to keep that continuity. Yeah. Um, so she showed me her flash art and she started, she, and we wound up talking sort of about the history of tattoos and how it sort of cross, you know, it's one of those things that you, that you discover when you research mythology is that cultures who have never had any contact with each other have things in their, in, in you know, aspects of their mythology that are contiguous that are similar and you're like well how did this you know how did these develop like out of you know law across multiple cultures that don't have you know contact with each other we have this story of a hero who finds a magic sword Mm -hmm. and so she was like similarly in basically every culture there is a you know history of tattooing of putting ink on your skin um to commemorate or to give you power and the power is often tied to 
battle. So it would be, you know, tattoos that warriors would put on their skin, like Maori, um, to give them uh, power to be to prevail in battle, to be stronger, um, you know, to survive wounds. And I was like, as, as sort of from that conversation came like the idea of like, what if there were a race of people for whom these tattoos actually worked? That is not, not that I'm saying they don't work, but they worked in a more immediate and obvious way. Yeah, that is okay. So a few things. One, because of your fandom and the idea of the stories, it lends itself pretty well. Do you ever get used to seeing fans come up to you at, like signings and showing you their Shadow Hunter tattoos? Oh yeah, I mean I have a like a collection of I, when I always when they do that I'm like, can I take a picture uh-huh. of your tattoo? And if they say yes, then I have like a little gallery of like the tattoos. And pictures, and I always feel very honored because, like I said, I'm constantly chickening out. So I feel about getting a tattoo. So I feel like if you have the commitment to, and you love these books so much that you're willing to put that on your skin, then I am extremely honored. So you said you keep chickening out. Do you have any tattoos yet? No, I keep chickening out. <laughs> <laughs> I will just tell you this: they get easier and easier to to get. Uh, I yeah, think, we still got to do the first one. Yeah, I think I'm at like eleven at this point across my body or maybe it's 13 this this is how you Can know you tell I've... me about one of them what's that tell me about one of them just oh just one okay um i will tell you about two because one is adorable with my wife and then the other one is my newest one so i okay. my wife and i had a wedding in wonderland because we love uh alice's adventures in wonderland so i have a mad hatter hat on my side on my rib cage which don't Aww. don't get one there first if you're going to get one <laughs> okay, um, good but it uh so it's a mad hatter hat and we got we actually got married on 106 which on the mad hatter's hat that's the price it says it says in this style 106 you know 10 pounds 6 pence or whatever it is um so we got married on 106 so it says on this date 106 so i have a mad hatter hat on my side and my newest one i have a half sleeve which is I'm I'm a distance runner, and we have two very active dogs, and we live by some wonderful uh, trails in Metro Park. So it's basically like a silhouette of me running in the woods with my dogs, and it all sits on top of a giant book. So that's oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I, See, I I'm just like this is so cool. I should totally go out and do that. And I even know like what like several tattoos that I would want to get, and I have so far chickened out in doing it. What I want is to make one of my friends come with me, with oh, my husband. Yeah. We, we got married on 10-2, actually. Yeah. But so far, I've been unable to convince him to get a tattoo. So I'm like, I just really feel like I've, if I can get him to agree to get a matching tattoo with me, <laughs> we would definitely do it. Otherwise, I'm going to work on Holly. Well, I was just going to... got, like, six tattoos already, so I feel like she's going to be easier. Yeah, well, I was just going to say two things. One, my wife doesn't have any either. She's like, I love all your tattoos. I She tells me she's too flippant, and she'll change her mind on stuff. But... Um, you said bringing in Holly. So my, I have three siblings, and if you kind of, like, combine all of us, I think we have, like, over 30 tattoos between the four of us now, but all of us have matching tattoos with other siblings. And oh, it, that's so cute. It was, like, a perfect excuse for us to be like, well, I mean, Megan wants to go get a tattoo that's in our mom's handwriting, so I should probably go do that with her and maybe get something else. Like, so, yeah, just take her, and at that point, like, it'll be you know, a great body. Hey, there anyway. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that point, like you, it shouldn't be hard to convince her. Cause if she does have several already, like that, that's your, she ride. does. And I, one of the things I wanted to get was there's, um, for the Magisterium series, which is based on elemental magic. Mm-hmm. The artist who did the cover actually created a design in which he combined all of the symbols for the different elements. 
And I was like, I would love to get that design to commemorate having written Magisterium. So, I mean, you, you've got to agree. Holly should also get it. Oh, yeah. Listen, I'm not trying to, like, strong arm you here, but you have... If if anyone in the world has perfect things to get tattoos of, you mean you've you've created a basic. I know an entire book that yeah. that like series that's based on tattoo magic. I know it's really embarrassing. Not only <laughs> uh, not even like created books like Cassandra, you've created like a like a universe of fandom and people and like empires. I mean, you've, it's perfect. For, I'm sorry. Now I'm like pushing you to do this. <laughs> If I do get one, I will definitely drop you a note and oh. be like, I finally did it. Yes, absolutely. You mentioned Holly, and I'm curious, and you talked about writing together. Like, How does it feel? You know, obviously, your, do- your friendship is well-documented, and so I won't make you talk about you guys being friends, because I know you've done that a hundred times, but is there... Is it challenging to write collaboratively, collaboratively with someone who you are so close with, or is it that you guys are kind of on the same you know, brainwave when you're putting stories together? Surprisingly easy, um, and I was surprised. I didn't know how it was going to be because I had co-written with people in my world before. Like mm-hmm. I brought my friends on board to work on short stories that were set in the Shadowhunter world, and I'd always had a good time with that. But I thought, well, you know, how's it going to be creating a whole world with someone else? And actually, it was really fun. Um, we have a really weird way of writing together. Um, that we told our editor about, and he was like, horrified. That we didn't. I don't think we really knew how other people write together. Mm-hmm. So we, what we did was like we got a laptop and dedicated that. It was like one of our old laptops. We dedicated it to being the Magisterium laptop, and <laughs> on that laptop was our copy of Magisterium. And we would get together. One of us would take the laptop, and they would write, you know, a couple hundred words. Then they would hand it to the other person who would write over their words. <laughs> and you know, like on, like you know, editing and, and changing, moving anything, and then write another couple of hundred words, or write it back and, and hand it back, and the other person would write on top of those words, and then add their hundred, couple hundred words. And when we explained this to our editor, David Levithan, who's done lots of co-writing oh, with yeah. you know John Green and Rachel Cohn, mm-hmm. he was like, "That's not how you're supposed to do." <laughs> <laughs> You know what? We were like, well, yeah, I don't know. This is what works for us. And he was just like, oh my God. There are. Well, he's, uh, you know what? And he, I've talked to him a few times too. Uh, Doesn't he do it like the email way where like they email back and forth or something? Yeah. And they write separate sections. Often they'll write, I think for David, he's more comfortable like picking a character Mm -hmm. and then writing in that character, those character scenes. And then the other person will write the other character scenes. Whereas we were writing all from one person's point of view. So everything had to sound like one voice. It all had to sound like Cal. So we basically had to pick a voice, and then we both had to be able to write in that voice. Yeah, I listen, you should sass him right back if you guys are ever thinking <laughs> about doing more, because the way he does it is crazy to me, where it's just like, that's such trust that the other person is going to follow the story. I'm like, I um, I interviewed, I think it was last year, uh, Greer Hendricks and Sarah Peckin, and they wrote An Anonymous Girl is what it's called, and like, they right. do they do what you guys do. Like they are basically together the whole time and they work like every single word together. Like to me that that feels more of a collaborate. Obviously David's doing just fine, so I probably shouldn't <laughs> take a tone. <laughs> I think you have to do whatever works for you. Mm. I think it, it, I mean to me, yeah. I was like, wow, that requires a lot of trust that you're handing this off and then you get back a complete chapter. What if you hate it? You know, from someone else, you know. And but I think to him he thinks, Well, you're showing a lot of trust in letting this person write over your words. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was, but neither Holly or I are enormously precious about, like, that kind of thing. So we didn't mind. And, you know, 
whereas I think we would both be more worried about handing off a big chunk to the other person and then waiting for them to get back to us, because what if they took the story off and it's, like you said, in a different direction that we didn't like? So I think it totally depends on sort of where you're more cautious as a writer and where you're, you know, more open to sharing and collaborating. I mean, you know, and everyone told Holly and I, you know, before we started, like, yo, you know, once you co-write, you're going to wind up having a huge fight. And so we were really worried the whole time. So we were like, uh, whatever else happens, like our friendship takes precedence. Like, mm-hmm. it's the most important thing. And whatever decisions we make, we always have to make them with that in the forefront. Like, that's the most important thing. And if this project is ever, like, threatens us being friends, then we're just going to walk away. But never did. Do you guys, uh, I'm curious, when, like, when you're writing your own projects, do you show each other stuff ahead of time? Like, did she see early oh, yeah. things of Chain of... Oh, man. See, I am always so blown away that, A, like, I'm getting access to each other's stuff, I mean, you're friends, so that makes sense, but, like, not telling people what you've read, <laughs> I... And I, yeah, no, no, you have to have mutually assured destruction. I read her stuff early, and she reads my stuff early. So if she started going around telling everybody what happened in Chain of Gold, then I would go around and tell everybody what happened in, you know, Queen of Nothing, and then we would, you know, both go down in flames. So, you know, fortunately. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's so funny you bring up Queen of Nothing, because um, that was what I interviewed her for last year, and it was, I mean, you know, it was such a big deal when it was coming out, of course, and, like, the publicist told me, they're like, hey, we're sending you an advanced copy just so you know, it's numbered and it has your name plate on it. Like, and I thought they were kidding and it arrived and it had, wow. a, it was like 88 of 100 and it was like this whole thing. And so I read it and then I was like, we did the interview like five months before the book came out and I was terrified someone was going to ask me. It was just like <laughs> sitting, hiding in the bookshelf at my desk. I was like, please no one look at this. I don't know what to do with it. I can't give it to anyone. I'll, I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> No, I know. It's, it, is a, it is a funny thing when you think about, because, uh, you know, to me, Holly is my friend. Yeah. I work on her stuff. She works on my stuff. We've done this for almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, with our, and our friend Kelly Link is, is a big integral part of sort of our process. And ba- Holly and Kelly are at my house almost every day, yeah. you know, work and we work together. So we're not always showing each other stuff. Mm-hmm. But Tuesday, I think Holly brought her new project and was just like, can you look at it? Can we talk about it? And it is, of course, it's an honor to get to read, you know, someone's work early and to get to, you know, put your order in, suggest things. Mm-hmm. But we all know that when we're asking our friends to read our work and give feedback and engage in, you know, plot discussion, we're asking for a favor. Yeah. I, you know, so it doesn't matter, like, how, I mean, I remember when, when I think, I don't think it was City of Heavenly Fire was coming out and, like, uh, it was all embargoed and there were no works <laughs> and no one was allowed to see it, but I still needed my friends to work on it with me. Yeah. You know, I still needed the feedback. And I remember at some point thinking, it's so interesting, like these people could take all the stuff I've given them and go and like sell it on eBay, but of course they never <laughs> will do that. See, those, those are like, like my... You interact with it, I think, in a different way. Because yeah. like my interaction with Queen of Nothing was that I saw the first chapter and then the first and second and third chapter uh-huh. and then the rewrite of the first and second and third chapter and you know then the first half of the book and then the rewrite of the first half of the book and then the last two chapters you know like I saw it all out of order and in pieces and then finally as it came together into a book so you see it the whole thing as it you see not just the book but you see versions of the book mm-hmm. and I think that's one of the most interesting things yeah see these types those are like some of my favorite stories about like author friends um 
I when I interviewed Victoria Schwab, she said the same thing. Like she went over to Neil Gaiman's house one day, and he was like, "Do you want to see the first episode of Good Omens?" And it was like months before it was supposed to come out, and she was like, um, "Yes." And she, <laughs> so she watched it, and then she told me she's like, "And then I wasn't allowed to say a word for like four months." And I'm like, "What do I do with my life?" And I was like, "Okay, that is." She's like, "I was just sitting on Neil Gaiman's table watching Good Omens with him, and he's asking me for feedback, and I'm just a mess." And I was like, "That's I love those two. Those are like my favorite." author interaction stories you guys are all the best um so towards the end of our uh conversations with authors we always like to ask nine light-hearted questions that we call the nerd nine because i like alliteration um so the first one is what is the last book you finished reading uh the i think the Ten Thousand doors of january so good it's so good i love how meta-fictional it is about stories you know, like the importance of stories and how mm-hmm. stories sort of, I mean, there are doors in the book, but the doors are, to me, the doors are, like, every door is a story, mm-hmm. right? And uh, I I don't want to, you know, spoil it for anybody, but yeah. that is the last book I finished reading, and I definitely highly recommend it. Um, since you liked that, did you read The Starless Sea by Aaron Morgenstern? That is next on my list, because I love okay. The Ninth Circus. Yeah, I was going to say, if you liked 10,000 Doors, you'll love Starless. They're very uh, simpatico in a weird way. Excellent. Uh, what is your favorite place to read? Oh, to read? Um, hmm, that's a good question. Um, we have a window seat in our bedroom, and it looks out over a waterfall, and I like to read there. Nice. Uh, do you remember the first book that made you fall in love with reading when you were a kid? When I was a little kid? I actually think that it was The Hobbit. My dad gave me Lord of the Rings, like, really early on, and I couldn't, like, Lord of the Rings was a bit much for me. I was nine. (laughs) And so my mom was like, you know, give me The Hobbit. And so he gave me The Hobbit, and I read it, and I loved it. And then, like, maybe two years later, I read Lord of the Rings and was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. But I think it was the first thing that made me fall in love. Well, the first thing made me fall in love with the idea of creating, that you could create a world, and that that world would feel as real as our world. What is one place you would like to travel that you have not yet been to? Oh, my God. That is a very dangerous question to ask me. I love traveling. <laughs> I think half of my conversation with Ian was about places we had been and places that uh-huh. we wanted to go. And <laughs> it is a long, 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 long <laughs> list. All right. Let me think. Um, I would really. I was born in Iran, and I would really like to go back. And it's always been kind of a weight on me that everyone is always like, now is not a good time to go. And now really is not a good time for me to go um, as a U.S. citizen, but I would love to go back to where I was born and explore it and see, you know, Iran is an amazingly beautiful country Mm -hmm. and has fascinating historical sites, and I would love to go there. I guess in the world of the more possible, um, I've always wanted to go to Morocco. It's incredibly, it looks incredibly beautiful and fascinating, so I would love to go there. And I would love to go to Japan. That is, like, actually my my bucket list. My my husband and I have been trying to figure out where we want to go for our 10th anniversary, Mm -hmm. and so we picked Japan. So that is next on my list. Uh, Do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate? Hmm. I do, but I feel like it sounds like weird. I like the Fourth of July, but not because I like like American flag cakes or anything <laughs> like that. Um, all of my friends that live in this area, we are assigned like a different 
holiday. Holly mm-hmm. got New Year's because she's cooler than me. <laughs> um, <laughs> and another friend got Halloween, so otherwise I would pick Halloween because Halloween is amazing. Mm-hmm. I got Fourth of July, so every Fourth mm-hmm. of July I throw a party and all of my friends come from everywhere and they stay at my house and we have a barbecue. And so to me, Fourth of July is like I get to see all of my friends. That's awesome. Are you a coffee or tea person? I'm a tea person. I do not like coffee and Holly is obsessed with coffee and we just the it is like the thorn in our relationship. Ooh, house <laughs> divided. <laughs> oh yeah, no. I mean, uh, it's truly like bitter knockdown fights about co- coffee versus oh, tea. Oh gosh. Uh cats or dogs? Uh cats. I have three cats. Do you have a favorite food? Sushi. If you could have dinner with one person alive or dead, who would you pick? Oscar Wilde. Oh, that's a good one. I don't think we've had Oscar Wilde yet. I like that a lot. He's so funny. I love him. I would steal all of his good lines. That's fantastic. Okay, last question for you. What do you hope readers take away from reading your books? I guess that, to me, one of the things that I feel is a constant theme in my book is that people are flawed, that we are complicated and flawed beings, that we have unexpected reactions to situations and that our flaws don't make us bad they make us unique and they make us human not to say one shouldn't work on one's flaws and the characters in my books generally do but i will leave in not you know showcasing perfect characters but showcasing characters who you know have demons that they're fighting have flaws in their personalities um because i feel like you know we all do, and uh, that is the best way to reflect the experience of being a person. That is perfect. Cassandra, this was so much fun. Thank you for joining me today. Yes, this was a great talk, and if I get a tattoo, I will send up uh, some kind of flair <laughs> so that you know about it. <laughs> Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Rakuten Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.